Hi guys, I'm Marie. And I'm Maddie. And we are here recording Lost in the Woods. Welcome back. Another week. Another week. And getting closer and closer to the holidays too. So yeah, that's super fun. So today we are bringing you guys The Man on the Moor, which is a pretty crazy case from the UK. So... Our case starts on the 12th of December, 2015, when a cyclist named Stuart Crother, who was making his way up a service road near the Chu Reservoir on Saddleworth Moor, when he came across the body of an elderly gentleman. Now, he was laying parallel to the tracks. He was laying on his back with his feet pointing downhill and his arms across his chest. Little did Stuart know that he had just set in motion one of the most intriguing cases in UK true crime in recent history. Okay, so Saddleworth Moor is a wide open expanse of grasslands and hills on the outskirts of greater Manchester, UK. Okay, so the area of where the body was found is around 700 feet below the Chew Reservoir, built on a moorland plateau at 1,600 feet, and it's called the Dove Stones. And is part of the Peak District National Park and the Pennines, one of the UK's areas of outstanding natural beauty. I want to go there. Pennines? Yes. Now, the service road or Chew Road, and this is near where the body was discovered, is accessible to walkers and cyclists, but it's closed to any unauthorized vehicles. For the most part, it's a gravel track that leads from the Dovestone Reservoir to the Chew Reservoir. So it kind of connects the two. Okay. My, my question that I want to place here so we can put a pin in it and probably come back to it later is, would a vehicle get caught on this road? That's a good question. I'm assuming it's gated off, but we don't actually know that. Okay. On discovery of the body, Stuart Crowther called... Oldham Mountain Rescue to come recover the body. While Mountain Rescue supposed the man had died of natural causes, they suspected a heart attack, by the way, they were required by law to report a fatality to the police. And the police were less ready to call the scene a natural death and open an investigation into the death of the unknown man. Well, no kidding. He's got his arms crossed over his chest. Like, who actually dies like that? No one. From a heart attack. You don't. You're, like, in pain, right? In a heart attack? Like, people are always, like, writhing around when they're having a heart attack, grabbing their arm. Um, I don't think you would grab your arm. I think that you would be confused if you had a heart attack. Most women are. Well, this isn't a woman. I'm talking about in general. Like, on TV when somebody has a heart attack. Like, I don't know if that's real. They, like, grab their arm, they, like, jerk, and then they, like, fall to the ground. No? Is that not how it really happens? It might be, I don't know, men are dramatic, so they might <laughs> act like that if they have a heart attack. Anyway. Um, a general description of the body was of a man in his 60s or 70s, approximately 6 feet tall, slim with gray hair, and a receding hairline, and a large nose. So there is, this, like, a sketch that was drawn up based on this man. And we know that that can be difficult to do when somebody is no longer living. And he was the 42nd unidentified body found in the UK in 2015. That's a lot of unidentified bodies. Can you look up how many are in the US? 
According to the National Missing and Unidentified Persons Database, which is founded by the U.S. Department of Justice, more than 600,000 persons of all ages go missing every year, and approximately 4,400 unidentified bodies are recovered every year in the U.S. So the U.K. is made up of England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. So that's probably not too bad, 42nd unidentified body. Now, there was no ID on the body, but in his pockets, there were 130 pounds in $10 notes, train tickets, and a small cardboard pill canister. So not a lot to go on as far as establishing his identity. But the train ticket proved to be their best lead. I would think so. Yeah. Now, according to the tickets, the man was boarding a train at 9.04 a.m. on the 11th of December 2015. So this is the day before he's found. And this was at Ealing Broadway Station in West London. Using this as a starting point, the police, led by Detective Sergeant John Coleman, began inquiring in the Ealing area, hoping to find out if he lived in the area or if anyone knew of him. Unfortunately, this produced no leads, so instead they turned to the CCTV cameras in the station, hoping that they'd be able to pick up where the man came from. Yeah, so the UK is one of the most surveilled countries in the world, with roughly one camera per 13 people. What? The average person is likely to be seen on CCTV footage around 70 times per day. What? There is an estimated 500,000 cameras in London alone. With around 15,000 cameras being used on the London Rail Network. Though most CCTV quality is poor and it's not of any use in the criminal investigations. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. That seems like a lot of cameras for them to not be very useful. 70 times per day, the average person is seen on CCTV camera. Like, that's crazy. All right. The man was picked up on CCTV, and it was discovered that he had traveled to Ealing Broadway from the South Ealing Station, which is on the Piccadilly Line, the same line and only a few stops from Heathrow Airport. Excited at this new lead, police quickly moved to the South Ealing Station to look through that station's CCTV in hopes that it would reveal where the man had originally started his journey. But when they got there, they discovered that the cameras in the station weren't working that day and there was no footage. Of course. So he arrived in Manchester at 12.07 p.m. and was spotted on the CCTV again at the station visiting the shops. So he doesn't make any purchases but goes to a gambling shop and a stationery shop. He then left the station briefly, but re-entered through a different entrance and went into Mark's and Spencer's food shop, but once again did not purchase anything before walking out. So just doing some window shopping, so, maybe? Yeah, is he window shopping or is he stealing? Well, I mean, they didn't find any belongings on him, so I'm assuming he's window yeah. shopping. He then wandered around the station for a few minutes before going back to Mark's and Spencer's where he did buy a sandwich. Wait, Marks and Spencer's is like a grocery store? Well, They're not two it's different... It's a food store. Yes, but it's not Marks and Spencer's. It's Marks and Spencer's. Yeah, I think the store is called Marks and Spencer's Food Shop. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Not confused anymore. Okay. Now, on the surface, 
this might look weirder than it actually is. So lots of people go window shopping. Lots of people are just trying to kill time. Maybe he's like supposed to meet someone and he's like just trying to wait it out. Maybe he had initially planned on catching a cab or doing something. Maybe he's waiting for his Uber. I mean, I don't know. Are there Ubers in 2015? No. No, I don't think so. Now, after he ate the sandwich, the man left the station again to go to a taxi rank before he returned another time and went to the station information desk and spoke to an attendant. At the time, this was an exciting lead, but the excitement was quickly dampened when the employee was interviewed and claimed to not remember talking to the man at all. He's got a big nose. No? Come on. Depends on how many people he sees a day. I know. That I know. And especially if the man didn't and especially if the man didn't leave any kind of impression, like they didn't have a conversation or anything. Right. If he just asked a stupid question about a train or a taxi or something. Yeah. Yeah. So in all, Detective Constable Nicola Chapman spent three and a half days trolling through CCTV footage in hope of uncovering any new leads. Mm -hmm. That would be so boring. Yes, it would be. Commenting on the man's behavior, demeanor in the footage, she describes him looking though he didn't really know where he was or what he was doing. The same was said about the footage from the Ealing Broadway station indicating that he was unfamiliar with both areas or was in a state of confusion. Right, and I feel like this would be hard to tell from CCTV footage, but I mean, if he's... Maybe maybe they're gaining that conclusion because he's going in and out, talking to an attendant, you know, like that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I mean, if you watch... I'm sure if you watch, like, a few hours on CCTV of tracking this man wherever he went, I feel like you'd be able to pick up on a little bit of... Yeah, you would think so. Now, it turned out the CCTV footage didn't help to identify the man as much as they had hoped, so the police turned their attention to the man's clothing. Hopefully someone might recognize the clothes or that they might somehow hint to the man's origins. The police identified the majority of the clothing as Marks and Spencer's brand. Wasn't that the name of the food place? Yeah. Is it like a Fred Meyers? Maybe. But his shoes were from the Swiss luxury brand Bali. And this didn't turn up any new leads either. Marks and Spencer's must be like a big brand of all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it has to be like a Fred Meyers. Yeah. Fred Meyer. Fred Meyer, thank you. So after leaving Manchester Piccadilly Station at 1 p.m., there is no sight of the man until roughly an hour later at the Clarence Pub in Greenfield, Oldham. This is roughly a four-hour walk or a 33-minute drive, according to Google Maps. So they can probably assume that he got a taxi or potentially took the bus uh, of central Manchester. Because obviously four hours is too much to cover. According to a witness, the pub landlord who spoke to him, the man asked for directions to the top of the mountain. He just asked for directions to the top of the mountain. Mm -hmm. So as described in the interview above, the man was dressed poorly for the weather just in everyday clothing. Um, So no heavy rain gear, no walking gear of any description was 
Like, he was not dressed for walking around. Right, he's, he doesn't look like he's hiking up to a mountain. Yes. The weather on that day had been described as cold and rainy. So more specific facts of the time that the man set off walking up the Dove Stone were as follows. A high of 12 degrees Celsius or 53 degrees Fahrenheit and a low of 8 Celsius or 46 degrees Fahrenheit. And fog and rain were also reported along with wind speeds of 17 miles per hour. And the sun would have set at 3.48 p.m. Which seems really early. So this would have given him only two hours of daylight to get to the top of the mountain or wherever he's planning on going. It's cold. And it's cold. The last known sighting of the man came at around 4 p.m. So after sunset, around dusk. When he passed by two RSPB, Royal Society for the Protection of Birds, workers. (laughs) What? I know, I'm sorry. The UK's royal makes everything better. Royal society, royal, whatever, whatever it is. It's amazing. It just, it's so much. Okay, continue. I'm sorry. I just love it. I love it so much. I love the royal. Now, these workers were surveying birds in the area. There was no conversation reported between the two, the man or the employees, but they did state that he was headed up toward the crest of the hill when they passed him. So police went back to trying to identify the body of the man on the moor. Three postmortems were carried out on the body at the Royal Odham Hospital. Royal. I know. The first autopsy confirmed the police's theory of a suspicious death. It determined the cause of death to be poisoning by strychnine. The cardboard pill container was also analyzed, and though the label read sodium thyroxine, a medication used to treat in underactive thyroid, it was also confirmed as actually containing strychnine. Now, if you didn't know what strychnine was, it is often called the Agatha Christie poison because of its frequent appearances in her novels. So this poison is used a lot in Agatha Christie novels, which, which I have read a ton of. Strychnine is an odorless, bitter, white crystalline powder derived from the seeds or blossoms of the Strychnos nux vomica tree. It is an incredibly... I think that sounded phenomenal. I'm sure that is very By wrong. the way, that whole line is just underlined and read on the computer. It right. does not understand the computer's what like, the computer's like, none of these on. are words. Yeah. He's like, this is not real. Now, it is an incredibly strong toxin, and only a tiny amount is needed to cause severe effects. Strychnine can be taken orally, intravenously, or inhaled. Which I believe means to inject into your yeah, veins. Yeah, through like a needle, yeah. As with many horrible poisons... It used to be prescribed as a cure-all pill. Of course it did. But now it is highly regulated and even banned as pest control method in the UK in 2006, making it illegal to purchase. Hmm. So it's illegal by the time this guy is found with it in his system. Damn. So there are cases, although rare, where strychnine has been used as a recreational performance-enhancing drug. Interesting. Or mixed with street drugs like cocaine. Good. Puzzled by the results of the first autopsy, the second and third autopsies focused on 
a severe leg injury, which looked to have been around two years old and was fixed with a titanium plate. In the third autopsy, the plate was removed for analysis and there was very little information to be gleaned from the plate. There was no batch number, but it was stamped with through Dynamic, a company based in Pakistan. After some research, the police discovered that the True Dynamic plate was only used in 12 hospitals, all of them in Pakistan. Whoa, so this man actually went to Pakistan to get his hip fixed? Or he came from Pakistan. Oh, yeah, true. I didn't even... Why didn't I think of that? What? I don't know. And it's <laughs> I leg, think he traveled. It's his leg, not his hip, too. Why was way. I just assuming he was a UK man who traveled? Jesus I don't know. Christ. Sorry. So this threw up even more potential questions of the unknown man's nationality. Naturally. I was just thinking he was a UK man who traveled to Pakistan to get a sip fixed, but I didn't even <laughs> take in the consideration that maybe he's just from Pakistan. I'm assuming he's from Pakistan. For six months, the body is held at the Royal Oldham Hospital Mortuary. There were two pathology technicians who felt so sad for the unknown man that they gave him a name. Neil. As apparently, they thought that he looked like a Neil. Uh, I think he looks like a Neil. Sure. And Dovestone after the location where his body was found. Finally, there was a name to go with the face. Although it is obviously not going to be the right name unless they are very good guessers. And it seemed to herald a new spate of leads. Either way, I think him having a name kind of, like, jump-started the case a little bit, right? Like, they can at least name him in the press, I yeah. guess. Although I feel like that could do more damage than not. Yeah. Police were contacted by around 40 to 50 people, all wondering if Neil Dovestone was actually their missing friend or relative. But the most notable of these was Sean Toner, who brought a theory that the man had been his father, Hugh Toner, who disappeared from a hospital in County Arrain, Ireland, in February of 1994. Whoa, so he's been missing for a long time if he's this man. Yeah, so I don't know if he just thought that he was had amnesia or had taken off. I don't know. Well, so... The man had never been located, or this man's father had never been located, but unfortunately, after DNA testing, this was ruled out. It was not him. So basically, the best lead they had, not the case. Uh Meanwhile, authorities from Pakistan gave Manchester police permission to search their fingerprint database. Everyone who had an ID card in Pakistan has their fingerprint on file. I also still don't understand why we don't do this. We don't do that. But nothing came from this either. Which, if he had an ID card in Pakistan, his fingerprint should have been in the system. I would assume. So maybe he's not from Pakistan. Okay. Yeah. Given the international interest, Interpol stepped in to assist, and a lab in Amsterdam carried out an isotope test on Neil's hair and bones. Now, that's where they can find out where you've been living, what environment you've been living in. And we covered that in the barrel murders because they used that to identify where they might have come from or where they had been living recently. So when me and my mom originally did the barrel murders, we listened to a very, very detailed description of where those women and their DNA came from and how they test and how they find out what region and how that all works, how that isotope testing 
It's crazy. It is literally fucking insane, and I can't believe they can tell all of that for my hair. Right? It's crazy. Now, they are hopeful that they can identify the region where this guy had lived most of his life and where he had been living weeks prior to his death. Now, the results came back confirming that Neil had, in fact, lived for some time in Pakistan. But his lack of fingerprints in the database signified that he was most likely not Pakistani. It wasn't much of a lead, but it was something to go off of. And we knew that he had lived in Pakistan for some time because he had surgery there. Lived or at least was there. There, yeah. But his hair says that he lived there or that he was there for, for some time. For a significant time. amount of time, yeah. So shortly after the first anniversary of Neil's death, there was a breakthrough. Assuming that he had indeed traveled from abroad, police searched through the passenger manifest from flights to London airports from Pakistan. Wow. So this was a long, laborious process. Yep, which actually ends up paying off when they come across a record and a passport photo which seemed to match the details they knew about the man on the moor. Neil Dovestone was actually Mr. David Lytton. They could have checked the flights from Pakistan to London back when they found that plate in his leg from Pakistan. But instead they waited a year and after this isotope testing was done. All right, you know. Yeah, but that's a lot of flights over the years to check. Well, no, they could have just checked for that time frame. Like when he ended up at the train station right next to the airport. Remember, the train station is like right next to the airport. Yeah, but did he come from the airport? Well, I would have assumed that he came from the airport. So CCTV from Lahore Airport showed a familiar face boarding a flight to... Heathrow, where he was also spotted disembarking at 15.30. So 3.30. On December 10th. Yep. So David Litton, he was 67 when he met his end on Saddleworth Moor. He had been identified finally, but there were still many questions surrounding his death and his life. Originally, he was known as David Keith Lattenberg. He was born on the 21st of April, 1948. The change of name came after a falling out with his family, who he hadn't spoke to for over 10 years. Yeah, I'm changing my name after that, too. I don't give a fuck. I'm making up my own last name. Okay. He is survived by his mother, Sylvia, and a younger brother, Jeremy Latin. So, mystery seems to have been a lifelong friend of David Lighton, with very little information emerging about his past life in the first few months after his identification. The most compelling information came from a woman named Maureen Toogood, who sadly passed on in 2020. Maureen was a former girlfriend and longtime friend of Mr. Lighton, but they first met in the 60s, where they struck up a relationship, but they never ended up marrying they remained together for over 30 years, though. That's a long time. Yeah, that is. Now, Maureen described David as a gentleman. Their first meeting, he helped her after she collapsed on the street while suffering from the flu. He walked me home to my flat, and he made me a nice cup of tea. We hit it off. 
Good thing he wasn't a murderer. Yeah, no kidding. He made me some toast. I hadn't had any breakfast, and he stayed with me until my flatmates came home. The following day, she said he was back on her doorstep. Huh. Despite his caring behavior towards her, Maureen recalled that he wasn't without his quirks. She described his home as sparsely decorated, no bed, just a three-inch thick piece of foam on the floor, a secondhand sofa, and chairs. Nothing in the kitchen, no kettle or toaster, or even food. The most notable thing in the place were his two Qurans, one upstairs and one downstairs. He said he wasn't entitled to comforts. Hmm. Okay. Throughout their relationship, the pair remained living separately. And in the 1980s, Maureen became unexpectedly pregnant with David's child. During the inquest of David's death, Maureen read out a statement to the court. In the 1980s, I fell pregnant with David's child. He was very attentive to me. He was over the moon on hearing the news. We were aware it was a baby girl, and I believed he would get married and our lives would be very different. The pregnancy was not planned, but we were both so happy. Tragically, I miscarried. However, David struggled to cope, and he became withdrawn and quiet. And I don't think things were ever the same with us after that. Despite this hardship, the relationship continued until 2006 when David left suddenly, leaving without telling Maureen where he was going. She heard from a neighbor of David's that he had sold his house and moved to California. Naturally, she was hurt by this, no kidding. But she still kept in contact with his mother, hoping that one day she might hear from him again. Unlike what had been told to Maureen, David had not moved to California, but had moved to Pakistan instead in what seemed like a planned decision after he put his home up for sale in 2005. Now, police were able to put together a little information about David's life in Pakistan. From his visa, they could tell that he had set up his new life in an area of Lahore called Hassan Town, where his neighbor said he kept to himself. Often seen reading or visiting the local internet cafe, he never bothered anybody, though local lads teased him at times. One neighbor told the BBC, it seemed that David didn't work, considering himself retired and often relied on the kindness of his neighbors for meals and to look after him after he broke his leg in a fall. There is little other information about how the fall occurred or even his life after this. That is until December of 2015. Now, at this point, David's visa was due to run out when he walked into the Lahore travel agent and requested a one-way ticket to London. After arriving in London, David contacted an old friend, Salim Akhtar, who took him out for a meal before dropping him off at the travel lodge in Ealing with his luggage. So he did have luggage. At the travel lodge, David paid for five nights, though he only ended up spending one before he left for Manchester. That's kind of weird. I wonder why you would pay for five nights if you weren't planning on coming back. Maybe he was. Interesting. So an inquest into David Lutton's death was held at Haywood Coroner's Court on the 14th of March 2017 where the coroner, Simon Nielsen, said that he was satisfied that there was no evidence of a third-party involvement in the death. 
This goes directly against what many of those who had known him and even police detectives who investigated the case felt. In fact, after the inquest, David's brother said that he did not believe his older brother was suicidal despite not having to spoke to him for over 10 years. I just don't know how you die. Like, he must have just laid down and died. Now, here's a clip of an interview that his brother gave. Um, I absolutely adored David. He was very, 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 very different. Um, uh, but we, we, we could never get close again after we left home. Um, there was there was just a big argument, but he just couldn't put it behind him. That's all it was. It was just a family route, go away, come back. We expected him back again a few days later, you know. Um, but he never did. He never came back. We could never understand why he never came back. I could never understand it. I might have met him dozens of times later on and, you know, try to rekindle. And he wanted to keep everybody at arm's length. No one could understand. It was just the way David was wired. Did you have any idea that he was looking to take his own life? No, David wasn't suicidal. He absolutely was not a suicidal case. He would not have come back all the way from Pakistan, got on a plane, paid for it, Got off at Heathrow, paid for a hotel for five nights, bought a return ticket to uh, to Manchester to come and take his own life. So what you might ask are the other theories as to why David Lighton took a train to Manchester and died on Saddleworth Moor. Police did explore a lot of different options. Now, before David was identified, police tried to uncover links to a local area, including seeing if there was any link to the man and the famous Moore murders committed by Ian Bradley and Myra Hindley. Now, this was quickly ruled out as having no connection because they could find nothing that linked the killers to our man on the moor. Now, it was also speculated that he could have been making a pilgrimage to the site of a 1949 plane crash which killed 24 people. It is speculated that he could have had family members who were on board or even could have been one of the survivors. But once again, police couldn't find any solid links to prove this connection. I feel like you'd have solid links. I don't know. He changed it. He changed his name oh, at least true. once. Oh, it was in 47 too. Yeah. Now theories grew more outlandish. The longer David went unidentified with people. Naturally. Yeah. Speculating that he was an international spy. Always. I actually, I could totally buy the spy theory based on like how he's dressed and what he did. I don't know. Sounds like something a spy would do. This theory always comes up when there's a weird death or an unidentified body. Yeah. Another theory is that he was murdered or part of a drug smuggling ring. I don't see that. The most compelling theory came about in 2020, and this theory was by Robert Neald, who is a retired teacher from Cheshire, and he recalled visiting London as a young boy in the 1980s and seeing posters all over the London underground advertising Oldham as a place to work and visit. He supposed it is very likely that David, who worked on the London underground would have seen these posters and the location may have stayed in his mind. This is especially compelling when you take into account that the poster showed an image of the Chu Valley, which we know is where he ended up. Mm -hmm. The theory lends itself to coincide with the coroner's findings that David Lighton was the one who administered the poison. 
Sadly, though, I think it's unlikely that we'll ever know the truth about what happened to David Lighton, whether or not his death was accidental or suicidal. We just have no clue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say that suicide sounds the most likely to me, but we will talk more about that in our bunker talk, too. And we'll let you hear what his brother thought about what happened to him. My personal theory, for what it's worth, uh, I think he was doing it recreationally. I think he built up a huge resistance to it. I also think that uh, it was a very, very windy day up there. I've been up there. My brother had quite serious heart disease as well. Uh, Going up to the point where he died is really, really hard work. Very, very hard work. I think he took strychnine to help him get up there. What he was doing up there, I've got no idea. But I think he took too much. I think probably the wind blew some in his face. And I think that's that's the way he died. That's, That's me. That's just my theory. That's kind of interesting, his take on it. Um, not sure that I agree with him, and I find it a little strange, too, that he's like, there's no way my brother committed suicide, even though I don't have a relationship with him and I haven't seen him in a long time. I don't know. But still worth taking into consideration. But, yeah, that was the story of the man on the moor. So... Thank you, Alicia Lighthaler, for your research on this case. You're amazing. We so appreciate you. Please reach out to us if you're interested in helping us with research. We love getting help from you guys. And before we go, we have some new Patreons to introduce to you. Yay. Yay. So today we would like to thank Troy B. for joining our Patreon. Hi, Troy. Welcome. Also, Melissa Montgomery. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to Patreon. We also have Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Welcome. We have Jen. Hi, Jen. And then we have Morgan Smith. Hi, Morgan. Welcome to Patreon. We appreciate you all. Thank you so much. You guys are seriously amazing. Uh, We will let you know we are taking the next two weeks off for Christmas. So there will be no regular episodes for the next two weeks. But if you really need an episode you can head on over to our Patreon and not only support us, but get a ton of bonus footage. And our Patreons will still be getting their episode. Yes. So go and check that out. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. You guys are amazing. And we also wanted to thank Kalia Farnari for buying our coffee and our pastry today. Yes, thank you Because we were able to get both. Thank you so much for doing that. And if you guys are interested in buying our coffee for us uh, while we're researching or recording, uh, you can find those links in the notes for this show and on our Instagram. And we hope that everybody has the best Christmas, holiday, whatever you celebrate, Hanukkah season ever. And if you are a Patreon, you should be getting our Christmas cards very soon. Yes. Yeah. All right. Thanks, you guys. And we will talk to you later. So Saddleworth Moor is a wide open expansion of grasslands and hills. Would it still be incorrect if I used expansion? I'm just curious. Yeah, they're two different words. Expanse is like 
the area expansion is like to extend something. But it wouldn't be like an expansion of no grasslands. That's not correct. Not unless they're adding to the current grasslands, and you're talking about them expanding the current. Well, grasslands. what if the grasslands are currently expanding as we speak? Wouldn't it be? If anything, they're probably actually going the other direction. Okay, we're not going to think about the reality of this. Okay, <laughs> let's just try again. <laughs> okay. 